1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.:
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm glad you survived. Snowpocalypse, Tuesday. And they tell us there's more snow coming. We'll talk more about that a bit later in the program. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And we're glad to have you with us. Mike Berry will be my guest this hour. He's the author of Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. And, yes, he argues... That it's possible. So I'm looking forward to my conversation with him coming up later this hour. Well, today, of course, is the um, day that the president delivers his much-anticipated State of the Union address. I say much-anticipated because it, of course, was supposed to have happened earlier, but that uh, didn't happen because the federal government was shut down and there was the back-and-forth with the president and the Speaker of the House. Well, that's all been resolved, or at least scheduling the uh, address. And um, the president will speak tonight to a joint session of Congress. Uh, We'll talk more about that, what to anticipate, uh, who is delivering the rebuttal, and some of the things to listen for a bit later in the program. But today is the big day. We do know that the president, uh, by his own admission, is going to call for unity, which is a bit of a challenging subject, given the climate, uh, during his State of um, the Union or disunity uh, speech. During the State of the Union address, uh, the president is expected to take on a role of um, fiercest critics say his most unfamiliar with uh, Uniter-in-Chief. The president is expected to call for unity and stress optimism when he addresses Congress and the nation during his second State of the Union address. But given the bitter partisan battle, uh, partisan, uh, battle with Democrats, especially House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who will be seated just over his shoulder— Um, Over the border wall, another looming government shutdown. The question is whether Democrats will be receptive or at least give the appearance of decorum. This is a tremendous opportunity to do otherwise, so I don't expect we'll see much decorum. Um, In fact, we'll see more out and out disgust than anything else. That's my guess. Will they applaud or will they sit on their hands? My guess would be... The latter. Uh, what will police, uh, Pelosi's expression be as a nation observes her in the background over Trump's left shoulder when he condemns resistance and retribution politics and makes his argument for strong border security via his wall? Well, this is the drama that faces the president's State of the Union address tonight at six o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Now, some Democrats with their selection of State of the Union guests have already singled the re, that reconciliation will uh, uh, will be Will not rather be on their agenda, in addition, the President is expected to showcase a growing economy despite the shutdown u s economy added a robust three hundred and four thousand jobs in January, marking one hundred straight months of job growth. The president and his top aides have also hinted that he 's likely to use the address to announce a major milestone in the fight against the Islamic state in um, uh, in syria so we 'll just have to wait and see what he actually says. Uh, when he addresses the nation at 6 o'clock, followed followed immediately by a rebuttal. Democrats are demonstrating um, hypocrisy with their refusal to forgive Democratic Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. That's what some are suggesting. Uh, Zayed Jelani uh, says uh, on the Tucker Carlton show, Uh, Of course, Governor Ralph Northam uh, is being charged with a racist photo that appeared on his medical school yearbook page more than 30 years ago. The liberal journalist said people need to people change dramatically over time and he needs to be forgiven, adding that liberals are undermining their philosophy. Jelani, who wrote an op-ed, op-ed rather, entitled... Why does Ralph Northam deserve no mercy? Called Democratic leaders unprincipled for pushing criminal prison reform while trying to bring down prominent individuals who've made mistakes. Now, Northam has refused um, leading Democrats' call for him to resign. He initially apologized but insisted he was not the person in that photo, still uh, admitting that he has gone in blackface under different circumstances. Critics are arguing the Democratic Party may have no choice but to have a zero-tolerance policy on Northam, a party that peddles identity politics can't attack President Trump and others for alleged racism if they don't police their own. Well, it's happened consistently, but we'll see if it happens this time. Uh, the turmoil surrounding Northam grew more bizarre on Monday when it became entangled with a scandal following Virginia Democratic Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. In response to a reporter's question, he suggested Northam could be secretly pushing a newly revealed sexual assault allegation against him to derail his possible ascension to the governorship. So who knows what's actually happening? But that's the allegation that's been leveled. Excuse me. New York Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Monday unveiled Details, new details on the so-called Green New Deal she plans to introduce in a matter of days as she worked behind the scenes to rally congressional support for the proposal that could cost as much as $7 trillion. Ocasio-Cortez, who's set to unveil the plan with Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey, told her fellow representatives in a letter that the Green New Deal calls for a national, social, industrial, and economic mobilization at a scale not seen since World War II in the space of 10 years. Good luck with that. Federal prosecutors in New York Monday issued a subpoena to President Trump's inaugural committee. A spokesperson for the committee confirmed a move that threatened to open another front against an administration dogged by investigations. We have just received a subpoena for documents, the spokesperson said in a statement. While we are still reviewing the subpoena, it's our intention to cooperate with the inquiry. The subpoena was first reported by the Wall Street Journal, which revealed that prosecutors had asked for all documents related to the committee's donors and vendors, as well as records relating to benefits that donors received after making contributions. They also requested documents relating to donations made by or on behalf of foreign nationals, including but not limited to any communications regarding or relating to the possibility of donations by foreign nationals. Well, according to the Daily Signal, federal district judges who preside over a portion of a single state have been able to block President Donald Trump's actions 30 times through nationwide injunctions, far more than any other administration in history, according to the Justice Department. The Trump has uh, prompted the Trump administration's Justice Department to seek an end to nationwide injunctions following a similar argument that was made by the previous administration under President Obama. And Senator Patty Murray single-handedly quashed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act which would have prohibited infanticide. Democrats needed a volunteer from a safe seat in a blue state to be a lightning rod for the party's infanticide support. And Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Monday that state income tax revenues plummeted by $2.3 billion since he introduced his new budget plan last month, a bombshell that will force him to curb spending, the New York Post reports. Predictably, Cuomo's preliminary analysis claims much of the impact is coming from a drop in revenues from the state's highest income earners, most impacted by the loss of write-offs of state and local tax deductions known as SALT. Keep in mind, lavish salt deductions largely benefited the wealthy in blue states with high taxes at the expense of taxpayers in low-tax states. And by 2060, the Census Bureau estimates that the number of foreigners coming to live in the United States will equal the current populations of France and Belgium. According to the Washington Examiner, the figures show that of the 79 million more In 2060, 75 million will be legal and illegal immigrants and their families. Moreover, without immigration, according to the census analysis from the Center for Immigration Studies, the U.S. population would increase by just 3.7 million, the latest sign that the country is on a path to zero native population growth. And there are warning signs the Islamic State group is regrouping in Iraq faster than in Syria, according to a new Pentagon report, underscoring the fluid nature of the security threat in the Middle East. The assessment of the efforts by ISIS to reestablish a foothold in the region comes as the U.S. military is moving forward with a plan to pull out of Syria. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a few moments. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 21 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour. In fact, in our next segment. We'll talk with Mike Berry, Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. We'll also anticipate the the State of the Union Address, giving you some things to uh, to think about and look for, rather listen for. On this day in 2009, the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg underwent surgery for pancreatic cancer. She had a sighting just yesterday for the first time in quite some time. She had an outing. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. And on this day in 1999, former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson is sentenced in Rockville, Maryland to a year in jail for assaulting two motorists following a traffic accident. He would end up serving three and a half months. And on this day in 1937, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt proposes increasing the number of U.S. Supreme Court justices. The proposal, which fails in Congress, draws accusations that Roosevelt is attempting to pack the nation's highest court. Well, more low-level Snow could be headed our way as people continue to deal with the uh, storm that shut down schools on the Portland coast, or rather the Oregon coast, Portland area, and the Willamette Valley. Most of it, at least here, has simply melted away. The current forecast shows the system moving south from Canada with snow at the weekend at sea level. So that's right where most of us live. A low will drop down the coast, pulling cold air out of the interior of BC. That has the potential to create a rain snow mix that could turn to snow showers as temperatures cool. According to meteorologist Rod Hill, he's tracking a stronger system from the Yukon on Friday night and Saturday. This one bears watching, as it could bring a more significant and widespread snow to the lowlands of western Oregon and Washington. Hill said as much as four inches of snow or more is possible and could continue to fall into Monday morning. The National Weather Service calls the system potentially significant. The exact timing, the track of the system isn't known, nor are precise snowfall amounts, which, of course, we, we know, uh, but none. Nonetheless, they expect a significant event uh, to uh, approach us, uh, at least potentially significant event to approach us Friday and Saturday. The threat of another snowstorm follows one that created problems on the roads Uh, Monday, led to school closures throughout southwest Washington, western Oregon, through today. And tomorrow should be just a normal day. But uh, these kinds of conditions could return rather quickly. Iowa Republican uh, Chuck um, Grassley said today that he thinks the Mueller report is going to be finished within a month. He isn't sure if Congress will see the report, but wants to force the Justice Department to uh, be transparent. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker issued his first comments on the Russia investigation last week, saying something similar. Whitaker said the probe is, I think, close to being completed. William Barr, who Trump uh, has nominated to be the permanent attorney general, told senators last month that he wants to see as much of the report released as possible. Well, Senator Grassley said today that he believes special counsel Robert Mueller is just weeks away from finishing the report. He was hired to produce some 21 months ago after his Russia probe began. Um, uh, Within a month, if we see it, Grassley responded, as his prediction. Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker said eight days ago that the Mueller probe was in its final stages. Now, right now, the investigation is, I think, close to being completed, Whitaker told reporters in his first public remarks about it since the president appointed him. To the Post. I hope we can get the report from Director Mueller as soon as possible, he added. Well, Senator Grassley said he supports efforts in Congress that would force the Justice Department to release Mueller's findings about alleged links between Russian agents and the Trump 2016 campaign. Whitaker and Homeland Security uh, Secretary Kirsten Nielsen submitted a classified report to, to the president on Monday concluding that foreign powers had no material impact on the integrity or security of election infrastructure or political campaign infrastructure. In the 2018 midterm elections. But Mueller's status as the arbiter of Russian influence has kept the Justice Department and Department of Homeland Security from issuing similar sweeping conclusions about the 2016 presidential contest. Senator Grassley told uh, Hugh Hewitt on Tuesday that Mueller's final product should be a public document with the exception of portions that impact national security and the privacy of individuals. He said he has uh, found common cause with Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal, a consistent Trump antagonist who also wants transparency. The two are co-sponsoring a bill that would force the DOJ to hand the report over. Here's where Blumenthal and I are on the same page, maybe for different reasons, Grassley said. Blumenthal is on the bill with me because he wants this report out, I suppose, because it's going to make Trump look bad. I look at it from this standpoint. I don't care what the report says. We paid $25 million, maybe $35 million to do it, and the public ought to know what their $25 or $35 million bought. Well, we'll see what actually happens. And one side or the other may be less inclined to make it public if it's less or more flattering to the positions they have taken on the president. On Monday, Senator Patty Murray blocked a Senate bill that would require doctors to give aid to babies who survived abortions, objected to uh, the Born of Life Abortion Survivors Protection Act, and her one vote was enough to prevent the Senate from passing the bill in a unanimous consent vote, according to LifeSite News. Well, last Thursday, Senator Ben Sasse requested the unanimous consent vote after Virginia Democratic Governor Ralph Northam, a pediatric neurologist, had made comments indicating he had no, um, not uh, objected to letting an infant die after its birth, indicating that a born-alive infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family de- uh, desired. Well, Sass had already called for a unanimous consent vote to pass a resolution defending the Knights of Columbus in mid-January. That resolution was passed unanimously. According to the rules of the Senate, a senator may request unanimous consent on the floor to set aside a specific or specified rule to produce um, or expedite a proceeding. If no senator objects, the Senate permits the action, but if any one senator objects, the request is rejected. Unanimous consent requests with only uh, immediate effect uh, are routinely granted, but ones affecting the floor schedule, the conditions of Considering a bill or other business or the rights of other senators are normally not offered or a floor leader will object to it until all senators concerned have had an opportunity to inform the leaders that they find it acceptable, acceptable rather. Well, Sass appealed to the conscience of the entire Senate, saying just a few years ago, the abortion lobby was... Uh, really clear in its talks about hoping abortion would be safe, legal, and rare. Now we're talking about keeping the baby comfortable while the doctors have a debate about infanticide. You're either for babies or you're defending infanticide. Please don't let Governor Northam define you. Murray objected on the unanimous consent vote, stating this is a gross misrepresentation of the actual language of the bill that is being asked to be considered, and therefore I object. Senator Johnny Um, Ernst responded to Murray's objection by asserting there is nothing great, uh, there is nothing moral or even humane about the discussion that we have before us today. Over the past week, we have witnessed the absolutely ugly truth about the far-reaching grasp of the abortion industry and its increasingly radicalized political agenda. Politicians have not only defended aborting a child while a woman is in labor, but have gone so far as to support the termination of a child after his or her birth. A child, a baby— Rationality, decency and basic human compassion have fallen by the wayside. Majority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell, who will have a a gauge, uh, have to gauge rather, whether to call later for a roll call vote, said the act was legislation that ought to be very uh, the very definition of something that receives unanimous consent in this body. It's harrowing that this legislation Uh, is even necessary. It was even more disturbing when last week a Democratic governor was unable to simply state that, of course, of course, these newborn babies have human rights that must be respected. That is increasingly no longer the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 30 minutes after four o'clock is our time. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with Mike Berry, author of Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is the author of Winning the Heart of Your Child. And in the 21st Century, that may seem almost impossible. There's so many bells and whistles competing for their attention and uh, to influence. But this book is for hopeful and expectant parents. Um, that don't dream of having bored, detached, defiant children any more than they desire their kids to have minds and moods and beliefs that can bring them to their knees. Well, in this book, Winning the Heart of Your Child, uh, Mike Berry offers keys to building a positive lifelong relationship with kids. Uh, The book um, really helps parents who desire a stronger connection with their child's Uh, to navigate specific issues like discipline, boundaries, making the most of their time, which passes so quickly with their children. Winning the heart of your child illustrates the great misunderstanding most parents across society have when it comes to their influence in their child's lives and gives those feeling invisible and ineffective the motivation and strength to maximize their influence and win their child's heart. Well, the author is a former youth and family pastor and the father of eight. He zeroes in on the unique role parents play in their child's Well, Mike Berry is the co-founder, along with his wife, Kirsten, or Kristen, rather, of the award-winning parenting blog, Confessions of an Adoptive Parent, and the support and resource site Oasis Community. He is a featured writer and influencer for Disney website Um, Babbel.com and his work has also been featured on Yahoo Parenting, The Good Men Project, The Huffington Post, Right Now Media, Michael Hyatt's Platform University, Great Big Story, Focus on the Family Radio, Moody Radio, Disney, and Jeff Goins. Uh, Tribe Writers Conference. I'm tired just uh, reading through them. Uh, He travels all across the country extensively throughout the year to camps, retreats, and conferences before becoming a full-time author and speaker. He spent 17 years in family life ministry in churches in Ohio and in Indiana. We are just delighted to have uh, uh, Mike Berry with us today to talk about his book, Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yes.
3: Thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you.
2: Now, making every single moment matter is uh, certainly the challenge. You begin in the introduction, recalling when you had your first child and um, the challenge of just bringing that child home. I think you said you were uh, pretty much astonished for the first uh, short period of time, but how quickly time passes. And there's so much that's required of parents um, especially when their kids are are moved away from the home and into a public school setting or a school setting where there are all kinds of uh, influences. Is it possible to make every moment matter? Is it possible for parents to win the heart of their child with the time that they've been given?
3: Well, I believe it there is. And I, I think it, it really comes down to um, being aware of how quickly time goes and how uh, you know when you when you hold that brand new baby girl or baby boy in your hand in your arms, you're told, "Wow, be careful! This time's going to go fast." And you know, oftentimes we we don't think time is going as fast as it is. And then when you're aware that time is moving quickly and that you need to seize those opportunities and really know what's important, what what is of highest value, uh, and that is a, a, establishing that that strong relationship with your child, that loving relationship with your child. I think that is possible when you. Are aware of that right from the get-go
2: now as a parent i suppose it's important to have a long view in fact you begin with the first chapter um, uh, making the point winning the argument but losing the heart a parent with a long view recognizes that there's a goal in mind that won't be complete for for quite some time talk about the the challenge of um winning a child's heart as opposed to necessarily winning every argument for the sake of the development of that child and extending one's influence.
3: Yeah, I, I think the the curse that we have as parents is that we, uh, and it's probably uh, has to do with the way most of us were raised. Uh, we were raised in households, I know I was, where um, mom and dad had the last word, and oftentimes that was delivered harshly and it was very commanding, and you didn't you didn't uh, fight back. But I remember growing up feeling like like wow, mom and dad, I, I just I just wanted to express, you know, a little of what I was thinking and I, I probably wasn't I probably wouldn't have said it that way as a teenager, mind you, but um, I think that oftentimes we are so concerned with having the last word and making sure that we drive the point home that we miss out on those valuable relational moments where um, we can engage in conversation. Now we still have to maintain discipline. We still have to maintain Mm -hmm. boundaries, but oftentimes I think we we spend a lot of time uh, walking over our children instead of walking with our children. And, um, you know, that our children inherently learn to not speak up, not express themselves, not, not, uh, converse with us. Uh, and that's really the point in that, in that opening chapter, um, that I, I wanted to deliver that, you know, we can, we can win the argument. I mean, we have the power to do so, but what are we, what are we losing in the process? It's something far greater than we realize.
2: Well, in fact, the subtitle of your book is building a positive lifelong relationship with your kids who will not always be kids and having that longevity and influence throughout the life of a child who becomes a young adult, who becomes a an adult and ultimately may become a parent. That's the challenge of, of parenting. Well, let's talk about what it means to win the heart of your child. There are lots of battles, ups and downs, things that will uh, challenge your parenting, but what does it look like when you've won the heart of your child?
3: You know, I think that it, well, first of all, I would say that, that if a parent who is parenting a junior high child or a high school child, if they are, are looking for the results right now and they're not seeing those results of, of uh, you know, living out the keys that I talk about in the book or seizing every moment or targeting or focusing on the heart, that's, that's fairly normal because right now you're in a season where your job is to parent, your job is to invest in, your job is to stay the course, stay engaged. I think that winning the heart of your child really has to do with the long term. It, it's like an investment account. You know, um, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, for that matter, you know, your your retirement account is not going to pay out the dividends it will, it does, it will like it will when, when you're in your 60s, you know, when the, the account has matured. Well, it's very, very similar in a relationship with our children. We invest through those uh, elementary, those adolescent years, the elementary years, the ch- early childhood years, we invest, 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 we stay engaged. We seize every moment, we maintain boundaries, and then when we've stayed the course and when we've focused on being an influential parent, then in the future we, we see the dividends pay out, and that is you enjoy this adult relationship with your child, uh, and that's someday. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of staying the course and staying patient and knowing that there's going to be lots of ups and downs, there's going to be lots of mountaintops, There will be lots of valleys, probably more valleys Mm -hmm. than mountaintop experiences. But you must stay the course. You must stay engaged, especially in those teenage years. That's critical. Uh, Even when it's dark, even when it feels like they're not listening to you, they don't care what you have to say, you still have a voice of influence in their life. You need to believe that. And then someday you enjoy the, the, the fruits of what you invested in those adolescent years but that's someday. And I believe that's what it looks like to win your child's heart.
2: Well, that's a real challenge to keep that long view in mind when you're facing a kid who's just done something Mm -hmm. really frustrating and the temptation is to blow it all in one event. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you um, divide the book up into three sections, and the first is called The Great Misunderstanding. What is it that parents tend to misunderstand that may ultimately undermine their influence?
3: Well I think that the the, the biggest thing is we, we think that our role falls somewhere between being a best friend or being all the way to the other extreme, which is being like a drill sergeant, like a commander or a general. Uh, I think that we have this view that that we have to be in charge we ha- or, or we have to uh, we get fixated on the ideal the, the idealistic uh, picture of a family kind of like the Gilmore girls I actually use that example in the book, you know, the mm-hmm. this dreamy mother daughter relationship, you know, that where, you know, everybody j- just has like this, this, Oh, it's it's so loving. Yeah. There's some issues every now and then, but we wrap them up in a half hour and everything's hunky dory. <laughs> um, you know, from that all the way to the BFF, the buddy, the elf, like, Hey, I'm your friend. I, I'm I, whatever, whatever you want to do is cool with me. Right. Um, and I, I think that we, fall into the trap of feeling like we have to be one of those extremes. We have to be this commander who's in charge, or we have to be this this um, passive parent who lets our kid do whatever they want, and that will that will win their heart. That will help you build a relationship with them. But I think we miss the point if we're giving into that. That's kind of what we see in culture all the time. But I talk about how there's another parenting approach, and that's the influential parent. That's the parent – that is able to balance love and discipline. That's the parent that is able to establish boundaries that are built in love. Um, that doesn't give in to fear, because we're we're filled with fear in this culture, uh, especially as parents. And with technology changing every single second, rightfully so, right? But I think the great misunderstanding is that we feel like we feel like we have no voice. And then we try to overcompensate by either being really controlling or really passive, and we misunderstand that there's a better approach, and that is leveraging our time, um, maintaining love, staying engaged, becoming a parent of influence.
2: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking with Mike Berry. He's the author of Winning the Heart of Your Child. Nine Keys to Building a Positive, Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Mike Berry, co-founder, along with his wife, Kristen, of the award-winning parenting blog, Confessions of an Adoptive Parent and the Support and Resource Site, Oasis Community. He joined us today to talk about his book, Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to building positive, lifelong relationship with your kids. Well, let's talk about uh, these keys to building a positive, lifelong relationship with uh, with kids. I think every parent aspires to just that, a lifelong relationship that's positive and their influence continues uh, through adulthood. Where do parents need to begin? What are some of these uh, keys?
3: Well, first of all, let me say it's not easy. Uh, it's And it's not just a... Uh, I would not even say it's not even just to read a book and and you're mm-hmm. you've got it. It's it's reading the book. It's and it's it's applying the principles. Um, you know, I really think that I, I would actually begin with key one. You know, I, I would say if a parent a, a parent in a starting place. Let's take the parent of a newborn. We have a lot. We have a actually had a lot of parents who ha, are raising little kids, like early childhood, who have picked this book up. Um, which the target audience is more for parents of teenagers. But I think it's valuable that they do that because in the very first key, I talk about blending love and discipline for influence. I can't tell you how many times I've, in my uh, family life, pastor career, I sat with parents of 12, 13, 14-year-olds or even beyond that who would look at me and say, I-, I don't know what to do with this child. They're completely out of control. This wasn't the way they were when they were little. And now they're out of control. I don't know what to do. And the more questions I asked, the more it became clear that in those early childhood years, they were very passive. Um, they, were, they were very, very loving, which is great. Per- they need to be nurturing. But they, they didn't have a healthy balance of discipline. They didn't know how to tell their child no. They didn't know how to say this is the boundary. And then as their child grew older, that became less and less and less. So I think that for a parent in in the early childhood years, you need to begin with that very first key, and that is blending love and discipline. Um, You have to achieve that balance. Um, For parents beyond that, um, I go right into that in key number two, uh, that understanding and embracing the shift, that there are going to be some years where you feel like your influence has dipped uh, in significance, where you feel like your voice is not as significant as it was when they were younger, But it is. You're still a a key voice of influence. You're just not the only voice of influence. And Mm. so in those teenage years, it's critical that you amplify other voices, other uh, caring adults who can speak into your child's life, a small group leader, a coach, a teacher, um, a family friend, uh, providing that they're healthy and safe. Um, But you need to be okay not being that number one voice of influence anymore. You're going to take a dip for a while in, in, influence, um, culture, friendships, uh, the world around them. These, these, uh, these children now are becoming little adults, many adults, and they're seeing this world brand new around them. You know, they're experiencing it for the first time. You need to maintain discipline and boundaries through that. That's just, that's not an, that, that's not an invitation to be passive. You need to be engaged. But I th- I would say to begin A parent needs to begin with keys one and two. If you're in early childhood years, key one. If you're in the teenage years, key two is for you.
2: Now, interestingly, the third key is one that might be somewhat surprising, and you suggest that parents need to amplify other voices of influence. They're already competing with a a wider audience. Um, Explain what you mean by that and why that can be important in helping a parent maintain their influence.
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the greatest gifts that my wife, Kristen, and I feel like we have been given is the understanding uh, early on that there, there are other people who love our children and they are partners with us in this parenting gig. So while I may look at my child, my teenager, and say, and, and, and say something that's guiding them or instructing them, Or leading them and they may look at me and roll their eyes then they go to small group that night at church or they they hang out with uh, uh, you know a a favorite aunt or uncle or one of our best friends and that person an adult speaks the same truth into their life and they get it some parents may be intimidated by that but my challenge is don't be intimidated that that's an incredible gift that you have as a parent when you have a wider circle of, of of adults speaking the same truths that you are into your child's life, that is a huge win. Um, so amplifying other voices is all about widening your circle of influence, celebrating the fact that your child is in a small group at their church, at your church, that they have a small group leader, a caring adult leader speaking into their life. Celebrate the fact that there's a teacher who cares about your child's life and they're saying the same things you're saying, and they may click. Those, the things that they're saying may be the same things that you say, and you may have the tendency to say, well, wait a second, we, we say the same thing, but yet a teacher said it or a coach said it the same way and it clicked. That is a win. That's amplifying other voices of influence, and that is one of the greatest gifts that parents, particularly of teenagers, can have.
2: Among the keys, you uh, write, use your time wisely, stay involved with your kids, commit to consistency, which can be very challenging, and love no matter what. Now, the challenge is if a child starts to stray, uh, you use your love as something of a weapon or leverage. um, But you suggest that loving no matter what is absolutely essential if you're going to have uh, influence throughout the life of your child.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I. you know, I've sat with so many parents over the years who, um, whose children, uh, were carving their own path, um, you know, growing into adulthood, uh, maybe even growing into the later teen years and the, in some circumstances, the choices weren't healthy. And that was, that's, that's one topic, but on the other side of it, the child was becoming their own person and the, the parent what I had to coach the parent through was you need to broaden your perspective on this child's life. And if you love them, you need to celebrate the person they're becoming. So that child may be into thrasher metal music, (laughs) you know, providing they're not making like, you know, dangerous decisions with their life. If that's the kind of music they choose and it's not what you're into, you still need to celebrate who they are. Right. And that may be, that's one example I could give you. Right. But, Uh, You know, loving them no matter what, loving them for who they are is about is about celebrating the person they're becoming, even if even if it's not what you are into or even understand. You know, my teenage daughters are into um, YouTubers uh, and they're into, um, you know, following these YouTubers that are making millions and have millions of followers. I I don't get it. I don't get it because I'm from Generation X. And we worked hard <laughs> we, we worked hard for what we have, right? And same with baby boomer generation. I don't get it, right? But when my daughter calls me in because she wants to show me a funny video that a YouTuber posted, I celebrate it. I celebrate it. In my mind, I may be thinking that is the silliest thing I've ever laid eyes on. But I celebrate the fact that she loves that, that that, that brings her delight. I think that we need to uh, meet our children in that space. Uh, We need to um, uh, celebrate who they are before we jump to correcting them Mm. because they're not like us.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, the other keys are um, listening to what is true about you, parents taking an honest look at themselves and leaving a lasting Mm -hmm. legacy. There's so much more in the book to winning the heart of your child, nine keys to building a positive lifelong relationship with your kids. Mike Berry, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the book.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on tonight.
2: You're so welcome. Again, the book is uh, published by Baker Books and is available in bookstores much more detail than our time would reflect, but a good resource to help you kind of think through uh, that process of child raising. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll anticipate the State of the Union address, which will be heard here in the metro area, 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after 5 o'clock, just less than an hour before the State of the Union address. The president uh, offering his second State of the Union after some, well, controversy. We'll talk a little bit more about what to expect. Uh, as the uh, afternoon wears on. That address, by the way, 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Well, the president is getting ready to step up to the podium for the second time in late uh, January. Well, he was going to deliver his annual State of the Union address, this time to a Democratic majority House of Representatives, when newly sworn in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pulled the plug on the event and the president agreed to postpone or make other arrangements. Uh, she had previously extended an invitation to the president just hours after lawmakers formally joined the new Congress, proposing a January 29th date for the annual event, which is held in the House chamber. But days later, she changed her mind, urging the president to postpone the speech because of the partial government shutdown, the longest in U.S. history. Well, they resolved that issue, at least temporarily. And so the president will be speaking tonight. The uh, uh, Speaker reinforced her plea to delay the event back in January telling the president that she would not allow him to address the uh, the nation in the house during the shutdown so it didn't happen but it is going to happen now. Well here are some of the things you need to know about the event that's taking place today uh some days after it was originally scheduled. Uh, Similar to 2018, Republican and Democratic lawmakers are yet again at an impasse over the president's proposed border security. The government was partially shuttered and about one quarter of the government employees were affected ahead of Christmas because Congress couldn't strike a deal in regards to funding for the president's wall. Immigration was also a hot button issue last year. So some things never change. Let's hope perhaps in the uh, next 365 days they might. What happens during a government shutdown? Seven things, um, well, several things happen. We won't go into them. But the government shut down for three days in uh, January of 2018 over uh, disagreements over the future of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, which was an Obama-era program, uh, offered protection for immigrants, also known as DREAMers, who came to the United States as minors brought by their parents. Uh, They eventually reached a compromise to briefly reopen the government during the Uh, Address in 2018, the president called on both parties to put politics aside to get the job done, a theme he may echo this year as Democrats control the House while Republicans maintain their grip on the Senate. Tonight, I call upon all of us to set aside our differences, to seek out common ground and to summon the unity we need to deliver for the people we were elected to serve. That's a quote from the president uh, earlier. Let's see if uh, the tone that he suggests is going to be around party or not party, but national unity. Is one that uh, can be achieved, it's doubtful, but we'll see uh the state of the union um will be attended by uh, not only members of Congress but also guests that were carefully uh, selected to make a political point. An official list uh, was released from the White House, so the president's cabinet, the heads of the 15 executive departments, including the attorney general, members of Congress, a variety of guests chosen by lawmakers, are invited to attend the nine sitting Supreme Court justices, uh, including newcomer Brett Kavanaugh, will also be asked to view the event in person. Uh, Members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior uh, uniformed leaders in the Defense Department who help advise the president and his staff on military matters will be invited Uh, To attend. The president will also, um, uh, or I should say, has also handpicked around 15 guests to join the First Lady Melania Trump in the gallery. It's a tradition that was started by former President Ronald Reagan back in 82. Some of these individual stories are heroic, some are patriotic, others are tragic, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders explained. But all of them represent uh, the unbreakable American spirit and will inspire our nation to continue growing stronger, prouder, and more. Prosperous. Now, there will be guests invited from the other side of the aisle that will be a little less uplifting in terms of the message that they send. But they do uh, take a jab at the president and make a point that the Democrats would like to make a Marine Corps veteran, a police officer, a welder and uh, parents of MS-13 victims. Uh, were among those tapped by the president to attend last year's event. And some of those um, categories will be repeated this time around. Now, Stacey Adams, a former Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate, will take the national stage to deliver a response for uh, rather to Trump's State of the Union address. The Atlanta lawyer was hoping to become the first black female governor in the U.S. in November ultimately came up short. The 45-year-old acknowledged that she wouldn't be able to defeat her Republican opponent, Brian Kemp, after a 10-day dispute over votes, though she refused to publicly concede, promised to file a federal lawsuit challenging the gross mismanagement of the state's elections. Well, Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, revealed the Democratic Party's choice for the rebuttal uh, at the end of January, calling Abrams a great spokesperson and an incredible leader. Somewhat unusual to have someone who's not a sitting member of Congress he went on to say that she has led the charge for voting rights, which is at the root of just about everything else. I'm very excited that she's agreed to be the respondent to the president. He reportedly uh, reportedly told a crowd of journalists after the announcement. Again, this was in late Jan- January. Uh, the designated survivor, which is a precaution taken to ensure continuity of the presidency, probably won't be revealed until hours before the, the big event. I haven't yet heard who that will be. Last year, Agricultural Secretary Sonny Perdue was tasked with the role. Ahead of the speech, the designated survivor will be taken to a secure and undisclosed, undisclosed location outside Washington, D.C., where he or she is expected to stay with Secret Service agents until the conclusion of the event. When the president and his cabinet members safely exit the past Uh, the packed house chamber, the uh, chosen official will be allowed to return home. It's not unusual for a lesser known cabinet member to be selected as the president may point out higher profile officials, as he mentions specific tasks and initiatives in his speech. So you have a designated uh, survivor. You know, it's interesting. I wonder if there are members of the cabinet um, and advisors who would really like to be the designated survivors. They don't have to go to the speech, but I'm guessing that probably doesn't really weigh in on the decision of who plays that role. Now, you might notice during the State of the Union address, dozens of women in Congress uh, who are once again aiming to use fashion to make a political statement at the president's uh, speech tonight. The lawmakers agreed to wear all white to this year's event, although some didn't get the memo. All white. It's a tribute to the women's suffrage movement. Representative Louise Frankel, a Democrat out of Florida, invited women from both sides of the aisle to wear the symbolic attire this week. We'll honor all those who came before us and send a message of solidarity that we're not going to back. Uh, not going back, rather, on our hard-earned rights, Frankel, the chairwoman of the House Democratic Women's Working Group, explained on Twitter. Uh, this is the second time female lawmakers were encouraged to don White while watching the high-profile speech in person after his inauguration in 2017 and the massive women's march on uh, Washington that followed. Frankel decided to call on colleagues to show solidarity. We wear white to unite against any attempts by the Trump administration to roll back the incredible progress women have made in this last century. Primarily, she's referring, of course, to abortion. And we will continue support uh, to support the advancement of all women. I don't see how abortion advances women, but nonetheless, that's a quote. Frankel said in a statement to USA Today in February, we will not go back. Well, no one's Urging them to go back, but protecting the rights of women in utero might be something worth considering. All right, fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Twenty one minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. A little more than a half hour before the president delivers the State of the Union address, immediately followed by the Democrat rebuttal. Well, congressional Democrats are using their guest list for the State of the Union address on Tuesday to score political points against the president on immigration, the government shutdown and more. And while the president has said he plans to deliver a message of unity today, tonight, and find common ground with Democratic lawmakers, many on the other side of the uh, the aisle, aren't buying his plea for bipartisanship with Democrats uh, fuming over the president's push for a border wall or whatever you want to call it. A still unresolved funding standoff, those uh, guest lists signaled the president could face a pretty tough crowd. No big surprise there. Well, in the latest example, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, said on Monday that she'll bring an activist who made headlines protesting against now Justice Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, Archila famously uh, cornered then Senator Jeff Flake in a Senate elevator and pleaded for the Republican lawmaker to reconsider voting for Kavanaugh. Archila says she is honored to be the guest of the freshman Democrat, will sit in the gallery overlooking the chamber during Trump's address. She said she will wear white and a pin uh, the congressional congresswoman gave her that says, uh, well behaved women rarely make history. Although they're not necessarily exclusionary. You can be well-behaved and still make history. While Ocasio-Cortez has chosen to highlight the controversy surrounding Kavanaugh with her guest, other Democrats have invited guests directly affected by the ongoing immigration debate and the recent partial government shutdown. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman invited Victoria Morales, a Guatemalan woman living in the United States illegally, who reportedly has was fired from the Trump National Golf Club. Morales has spoken out about the Trump Organization's hiring practices hired as an illegal and then fired. I'm not sure what element um, she was referring to, but the Trump organization said last week that it will use the E-Verify electronic system at all its uh Uh, properties to check employees uh, documentation. Sandra Diaz, a native of Costa Rica who worked at Trump's club from 2010 to 2013, also will be attending the State of the Union as a guest of Democratic Representative Jimmy Gomez of California. Diaz was also hired uh, without uh, legal papers. She is now a legal permanent U.S. resident and said she decided to speak out because she is angry about the president describing some immigrants as violent. Uh, Senator Jeff Merkley um, invited a mother and daughter from Guatemala who were denied asylum in the United States, eventually were separated for two months last spring um, uh, after they were caught illegally crossing the Southern border and the list goes on. So the gallery will be perhaps as uh, interesting as uh, the speech and the members who are present. And I'm certain that the media who is very anxious to undermine the president. Uh, and his State of the Union address will spend a significant amount of time identifying each one of the dissenters who are there in the uh, in the gallery. Well, some of the topics the president should address in the State of the Union. Well, of course, Americans can expect the president to advocate for border security, including a wall or fence or whatever you want to call it. And he'll no doubt... Uh, comment on the terrific success of the economy during his tenure, but there are also plenty more the president should address in his speech. For example, health care has uh, risen once again to the top of the list for many and uh, spending time describing a conservative health care solution, particularly in view of the more radical um, Medicare for all plans that have been uh, suggested by his opposition. In his State of the Union, he should challenge Congress to work with his administration on lowering health care costs, improving choices, protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Last year, the administration acted to provide administrative relief and offer new flexibility to states. States found that they could lower costs without new federal spending and also ensure those with pre-existing conditions could get access to care. These initial results are promising, but more needs to be done. The president should also talk about increasing border security. it certainly Involves a wall, but it's not limited to that. Immigration is an emotionally and politically charged issue, as we all know. But despite the emotion, good policy hasn't changed. The United States still needs better enforcement and border security. The U.S. needs more and better border security, including a mix of barriers, technology, agents. Uh, deployed where they uh, are cost-effective and most needed. Perhaps more importantly, the president should make the case for better enforcement. When someone overstays a visa, when they show up at a port of uh, entry to claim asylum, when they're apprehended by Border Patrol agents, or when they sneak across the border, the U.S. needs to have strong enforcement to make sure Uh, those who are attempting to come are caught and removed or held in a way that is consistent with the law. Also cutting spending, $68,000 for every man, woman, and child. That's what the $22 trillion national debt amounts to. The debt's growing at a rapid pace with annual deficits projected to exceed $1 trillion for the foreseeable future. Now, Congress and the administration should seize the opportunity this year to pair any increase in debt limit with significant fiscal restraint. We learned earlier from the CBO that uh, the uh, rise in the debt is not related to the tax cuts but rather to spending the president should also set the stage for budget the budget control act negotiations this year by demanding that any increase in spending caps for discretionary spending has to be paid for with spending reductions Um, we'll see if that happens i rather doubt it uh, also, the president should comment on the trade war with uh, China, which he is very optimistic about. His talks concluded just days ago. Conservatives want to hear that the trade war with China is coming to an end. Since July of last year, the White House has levied new taxes on Chinese imports into the country. Beijing has uh, reciprocated against U.S. exporters, leading to an escalation um, in trade tensions. With no progress being made yet, U.S. businesses are concerned about the future of U.S. trade policy toward China. The State of the Union would would be an excellent time to announce uh, that progress isn't just hoped for, but has been made. Uh, the president might uh, comment on safeguarding the integrity of our elections. He needs to remind members of Congress that protecting the right to vote and safeguarding the integrity of our elections is fundamental to preserving and maintaining our great constitutional republic. We need to ensure that all eligible um, eligible Americans are able to vote and that their vote is counted, not stolen or diluted by fraud Or administrative errors. And while elected officials have a duty to guarantee the security and fairness of the election system, they have to do so without restricting the ability of our citizens and candidates for public office to speak freely and otherwise engage in political uh, uh, communication, including the ability to associate with other members of the public who share their beliefs. The president should challenge Congress to work with him on reforms to help Americans escape poverty by addressing barriers to work and stable marriages. The welfare system today is vast. According to research from Heritage, Uh, there are 89 federal means tested welfare programs in the current welfare system with a total annual cost of more than one point one trillion dollars. The poor will benefit from a welfare system that encourages work and marriage. The current welfare system fails drastically on both those accounts. And improving the infrastructure, which is a big ticket item but must be addressed at least at some point in the near future or we'll begin to really see the the results of failing to do so. Rather than calling for a bill stuffed with pork projects and federal mandates, the president should make the case for Congress and the nation for improving infrastructure by getting the federal government out of the way. The President's deregulatory agenda is one of the driving forces behind today's strong economy, and there's still a huge amount of potential infrastructure investment that can be generated with further regulatory reforms, many of which require new legislation. Unfortunately, still uh, members of Congress still insist on having Washington micromanage what gets built and where, and that makes it far less uh, cost effective and efficient. Some of the areas that the President might consider discussing during Uh, his State of the Union. Now, as I mentioned, Stacey Abrams, the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, who lost... A race for a governor in November will deliver the Democrats rebuttal tonight to the president's State of the Union address. She has a rather interesting uh, background. She um, uh, wants to turn Georgia blue. No surprise there as a Democratic uh, candidate. She wants to promote race and gender issues. In fact, identity politics is a major theme of her political uh, career. She was endorsed by Planned Parenthood. She is sick and tired, as she put it, of free market role. Uh, in health care, so she would most likely be in favor of Medicare for all. She says uh, liberal is a good word. She says the AR-15 doesn't belong in civilian hands. And perhaps most interestingly, she's a romance novelist. Under the pen name Selena Montgomery, the former Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia, has written sexually explicit romance novels, including the books Secrets and Lies, Reckless and Hidden Sins. She... um, Propped herself up, gave herself the satisfaction of studying. Well, I'm not even going to go into that. <laughs> She's a romance uh, novelist. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Thirty five minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The president will. Take to the podium for the State of the Union address in about 25 minutes. Well, Americans have pretty much given up on trusting Washington to handle big problems, according to a new survey. For different reasons, just 35 percent trust the government to handle domestic problems and 41 percent international issues. Americans' trust in the federal government's ability to handle both domestic and international problems has sunk to the lowest point in more than two decades. 35 percent of Americans have a great deal or a fair amount of trust and confidence in the U.S. government's ability to deal with domestic issues, down from 45 percent four months ago. Over the same period, the reading for handling international issues has dropped nine percentage points to 41%, Gallup said. Those are record lows on issues Gallup has been following for two decades, the polling outfit said. Well, the public's trust in government's handling of both domestic and international issues has been severely breached, reaching record lows in the latest polling. Until 2007, majorities of Americans consistently expressed confidence on both fronts. Now, the fact that they haven't dealt with Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, they haven't resolved um, immigration security, they haven't dealt with... um, Entitlement programs, really big issues that require big solutions, the, the fact that health care is uh, still unresolved, I think is in part an explanation why people think that uh, Congress is unable to or they have very little confidence that they can handle. I think that probably the word will is a better one to insert there, but uh, whether or not they can handle big problems um, seems to be supported by their unwillingness or inability to have already done so. Well, the president has asked Congress for $5.7 billion to build a wall along the southern border. No big news there. He said that if necessary, he may declare a national emergency and act unilaterally and that he has the authority to do so. Well, as is the case, any time a president tries to circumvent Congress and act unilaterally, there is the legal question of whether he can do so and the normative question of whether he should do so. Well, with regard to the legal question, he certainly has the grounds, but with regard to the... uh, uh, the moral question, whether or not he should—that's a whole nother, um another question—and we've gone into some detail about how the law um, gives pr- the executive latitude to make these kinds of declarations. But there are other elements that have to be filled in uh, before he can move forward. You can make the um, declaration of an emergency, but moving forward, finding the funding, and and so on, uh, requires uh, an accounting, and whether or not the president will decide to do that. It's uh, not yet clear, but it will be determined, I would expect, over the next few days, as Congress has until the 15th of January, to determine whether or not there will be another government shutdown, resolve the issues that divide the Democrats and the Republicans uh, over uh, border security, and um, the president will, I assume, make that announcement at some point in the near future. It is not expected that he will uh, make that announcement during the State of the Union today, by all accounts that we've been hearing up to this point. And a little uh, news a little closer to home, Secretary of State Dennis Richardson, who is battling brain cancer, announced uh, on Monday morning that he's scaling back his time in the office to be able to rest and give his treatment every opportunity to succeed. He made the illness public uh, back in June. And in December, he thanked all who have stepped up to offer him encouragement and well wishes. At the time, he also said three recent MRI scans showed a brain tumor had not grown and that a fourth was scheduled. He released the announcement on Monday saying, I can't thank thank everyone enough for their countless well wishes and prayers although my cancer diagnosis was made last may the continued outpouring of support from across oregon and the country remains humbling beginning this week i will be scaling back in my uh, in office hours to be able to rest and give my treatment every opportunity to succeed i will of course continue to be in frequent and regular contact with my staff that has uh, been doing incredible work since the day we took office over 2 years ago i will also continue to be the decision maker on all important issues Again, the support I have received from so many has been an incredible encouragement to me, and I am truly thankful. He is one of the lone Republicans um, in uh, leadership in the state of Oregon. The largest Christian university is under fire for canceling a speech from Jewish conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. The school cited biblical truths and a fear that he would divide the school's unique and united community uh, was given. Grand Canyon University officials told students uh, from the Young America's Foundation chapter at GCU of their decision on Thursday. The decision immediately drew a firestorm of criticism by caving into unseen mob, ignoring the popularity of Shapiro amongst the student body. Grand Canyon University just played itself and deserves whatever negative response this gets. YAF uh, spokesperson Spencer Brown said in a statement, GCU, rather, abandoned the sentiment of its own proclaimed value deluded itself into acting like the liberal campus it claims to differ from, and blindly accepted the left's ludicrous argument that Shapiro's presence somehow damages students, campuses, or debates in a statement released on Friday. The administrators there acknowledged the school's decision to block the Daily wire editor-in-chief and host of the Ben Shapiro show, saying they knew it to obviously disappointed and offended some in the Phoenix community. Uh, We know that if we had made a different decision, we would have disappointed and offended others within the same community. The statement reads, it was not our intent to disappoint or offend anyone. It was rather to use our position as a Christian university to bring unity to a community that sits amidst a country country, rather, that is extremely divided and can't seem to find a path forward toward unity. The Christian University also references a very divided America and the school's mission to achieve the kind of peace that Jesus called for in the scriptures. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, making this move certainly did not result in peace. Of the dozens of schools Shapiro has spoken for, only a handful resulted in protests or a dangerous situation at ultra-liberal campuses like the University of California, Berkeley. Multiple people were arrested in Berkeley after mass protesters broke out because of his speech. Well, according to the YAF students, uh, GCU administrators specifically cited DACA students and what Shapiro may say about immigration as grounds for canceling the speech. So the diversity of opinion was no longer welcome. I appreciated what David French wrote about uh, this decision, uh, writing that with a headline when Christians are too afraid to hear Ben Shapiro speak. He says uh, Ben Shapiro um, speaking at the 2018, well, I won't start there, but on Friday, another university canceled another Ben Shapiro speech. He's used to this by now, of course. It happened at public and private universities across the country. There are some on the left who hate him. They want him de-platformed as often as possible, and so it's hardly surprising that where the left holds the most power, his position will be most precarious. But Friday's cancellation was different. This time, a Christian college canceled his appearance. Grand Canyon University holds itself out as traditional and orthodox in its beliefs. Its doctrinal statement reads like the statement of faith at countless evangelical churches in the United States. Moreover, the school supplements its doctrinal statement with a truly admirable series of ethical position statements. As a matter of official position, the school declares a belief that God created the universe without stating a specific position on the matter of uh, creation. It supports a right to life from conception until natural death. It affirms the view that sexual relationships should be reserved exclusively for marriage, and it defines marriage as the union of a man and a woman. Grand Canyon even has a strong statement in support of academic freedom, stating rather that critical thought, open dialogue, and a fair presentation of all major views is vital to higher education, but is indispensable for genuinely Christian instruction. Shapiro, by the way, believes in each of the statements uh, made by the university. He wasn't coming to disrupt the university's mission. If anything, he'd affirm many of its most central teachings, yet Grand Canyon canceled him anyway. And the question is why? Well, the school statement justifying uh, its decision was a revealing mess, somehow managing to be simultaneously self-righteous and cowardly. At the outset, it acknowledges that the school agrees with many of the things that Ben Shapiro speaks about and stands for, but then it nonsensically claim that our decision to cancel Shapiro's speech engagement is not a reflection of our ideologies or the values he represents but rather a desire to focus on opportunities that bring people together. Okay. But deplatforming an inherently divisive is inherently divisive. It's an explicit rebuke and rejection of the many people who wanted to hear Shapiro speak. As the statement continues, it grows more ob- obsequious. Writing bullet points about Grand Canyon's diversity, its commitment to its community, and its positive impacts on the neighborhood and the wider world, it acknowledges that uh, it's offering Shapiro supporters, but uh, offending, rather, Shapiro supporters. But the entire release reads like a plea to a secular world. Yes, we erred by inviting Shapiro, they argue, but please, like us anyway, we're still good people. At first glance, a statement like this seems very off-brand for modern evangelicalism. After all, isn't the it Trumpian now? aren't evangelicals all about owning the libs? But if you dig deeper, you know that Grand Canyon's actions are entirely consistent with real malady that stalks much of American evangelical thought. Christians aren't so much about owning the libs, they're all about fearing the libs, and that fear manifests itself differently in different Christian communities. In white evangelicalism, more broadly, you see the A palpable panic of increased uh, secularization and diminished liberty that led to the people of God. The heirs to a line of faith that is thousands of years old to seek the protection and good graces of the philandering, mendacious reality television star and real estate developer. Yes, in early days, people of faith like Hezekiah confronted the Assyrian army while relying on God and not human reliances to save his people. But good grief, that's Hillary Clinton out there. How can the church withstand... Her terrible wrath. Well, in other sectors of evangelical church, however, the fear of the left mixed with uh, more than a little desire for the kind of earthly prestige that only the secular progressive elite can bestow creates a very different effect, especially in academic circles. You see, Christians virtually begging, "Don't treat me like the other Christians. I'm not like them." It's a modern version of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where the new Pharisee puts out a press release that says, We're not like those mean conservatives. We give back to our community and embrace diversity in the vain effort to secure the world's approval and thereby secure their institutional future. These fearful Christians broadcast their good deeds to the world, hoping the world will love them back or to continue the analogy to Hezekiah and the Assyrian threat. One set of Christians looks at the Assyrian army and cries out to Egypt for assistance. The other looks at the Assyrians and seeks to curry their favor, hoping for mercy from those who are fundamentally hostile to their faith. Well, he goes on from there. David French writing for national review and Christians are too afraid to hear Ben Shapiro speak very sad day. Indeed 47 minutes after five o'clock. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, of course, the State of the Union address is set for about 15 minutes from now, 10, 12, 15 minutes from now. And this will be rather interesting. Both sides have uh, uh, selected guests to accompany them to make some sort of an appoint. Uh, The president has invited guests. Members of Congress have invited guests. Uh, the attention less on the State of the Union address itself than the people who happen to occupy the chamber along with uh, those who are seated for the speech. So it's a rather interesting drama. Um, And my guess is uh, Maxine Waters suggested nobody listen to it at all. But if you care about the future of the country and the direction it's likely to take, whether you agree with that direction or are likely to oppose it, it's important to know what's being said. So at least you're informed about what you oppose and, Um, How to move forward. Anyway, that's all going to take place six o'clock p.m. our time. And as you know, this has been a rather contentious season. Um, The uh, federal government could shut down at least a portion of it on the 15th of February if members of Congress are unable to come to some sort of an agreement that satisfies everyone. So the petulant children. Um, have only met once, um, but we're hoping that they'll meet sufficient times, number of times to at least approach some sort of an agreement. We'll see what happens next. So that's coming up at 6 o'clock p.m. I would encourage you to tune in or you can wait till tomorrow and just read the speech. Sometimes I have to admit I can't sit through the whole thing. It's just more than I can I can bear. It's close to dinner time and I'm, I'm going to try to eat. Uh, so I sometimes wait till the next day and actually read the speech, Um, I usually accompany that by watching it as well, but it can be a bit of a challenge, and they seem to have gotten longer and longer every year. But what's going to be said is important. Um, You don't listen to it because you agree with it or disagree with it. You listen to it because it's the State of the Union address. It will be followed, of course, by a rebuttal, and this year uh, the rebuttal is uh, by someone who lost her bid to be the governor of Georgia, but um, is considered a rising star in the Democrat Party. So she will be responding to the president's speech. And we learn that Bernie Sanders has taken it upon himself that he's going to offer a rebuttal as well as an individual, apparently. And I'm not sure where that's going to be seen or heard, but Bernie Sanders will also be commenting. Um, so if you're interested, you can uh, listen to him somewhere, say something about what the president has just said. A couple of things I want to mention before our time is up today. More than 50 media organizations, celebrities and politicians were sent letters. These are letters from lawyers representing the Covington Catholic High School students seen in a controversial viral video that was misleading. It's the first step in a possible libel and defamation lawsuit. And the teen's legal team also released a 15 minute video that they say shows the truth about his interaction at last month's March for Life. Senator Elizabeth Warren, actress um, Alyssa Milano, Jim Carrey, media organization CNN, The New York Times and The Washington Post, the diocese of, um, of Covington were among the dozens recently sent um, preservation letters. Uh, the text of which advised the parties not to destroy any documents in connection with the case. The Cincinnati Enquirer first reported on Friday the initial list of organizations and attorney Todd McMurdy. He confirmed uh, on Monday that more organizations or individuals could also receive letters. It is an enormous pool of possible defendants, he said, adding only one party has responded to the letter, though he did not say which. Well, McMurdy of the Hemmer de Frank Uh, Wessel's law firm in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, is part of the legal team representing Nick Sandman. The Kentucky teenager vilified online after a viral video widely misrepresented him, allegedly harassing a Native American man following a pro-life demonstration in January at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The incident sparked massive and widespread criticism and uh, of Sandman who was seen in a brief snippet of the encounter smiling while standing in front of the activists and Sandman's classmates. While well, subsequent video revealed the student, some including Sandman, Um, wearing red Make America Great Again hats, were actually accosted and yelled at before Phillips and other Native American activists approached them. Another group, the so-called Black Hebrew Israelites, were heard and seen shouting at the students. Both school officials and the Native Americans involved have said that they've received death threats since that encounter. And, of course, what uh, makes its way online in in terms of defamatory um, content will remain online for the— the life of this teenager. McMurdy told the Inquirer that um, the aftermath of the incident permanently stained Nick's reputation—that's the teenager—and the organizations and individuals addressed in the letters may have defamed or libeled Nick with false reporting. So that uh, libel suit may, in fact, be filed and move forward. The attorney was uh, quoted earlier today as saying whether or not they're actually successful in uh, their effort to file suit for libel— Uh, It's an important uh, case to argue, and it will perhaps um, hold the media to a higher standard and prevent similar incidents moving forward. Well, they're telling us more low-level snow could be headed our way as people continue to deal with the storm that shut down schools on the Oregon coast, the Portland area, and the Willamette Valley. The current forecast shows the system moving south from Canada, with snow at the weekend at sea level. A low will... uh, drop down the coast, pulling cold air out of the interior of B.C. That has the potential to create a rain-snow mix that could turn to snow showers as temperatures cool. According to uh, meteorologist Rod Hill, he says he's tracking a stronger system from the Yukon Friday night and Saturday. This one bears watching as it could bring a more significant and widespread snow to the lowlands of western Oregon and Washington. He said as much as four inches of snow or more is possible and could continue to fall into Monday morning. The National Weather Service calls the system potentially significant. The exact timing and track of the system isn't known nor are precise snowfall amounts. In fact, you will recall we were expecting um, snow on Monday and it turned up on Tuesday here at least in the Portland metro area. The threat of another snowstorm follows one that created problems on the roads this morning um, and led to school closures throughout southwest Washington, western Oregon uh, through uh, today. So keep that in mind. We're t- being told that there is some more snow likely to come. So uh, just a bit of a heads up. Tomorrow on the program, of course, we'll follow up and respond to the State of the Union address as well as other comments that will be heard uh, immediately following the president's speech. Um And uh, we'll have a lineup of guests to discuss that. We're also working on some other things. On Thursday, we'll talk with Jason Thompson. He is the director of Portland Fellowship. We'll catch up with him and what the organization is doing right about now. So I'm looking forward uh, to talking with him. Now, Portland Fellowship, as you might recall, is the organization here in the Portland area. And there are others like it all across the country that work with individuals who have made the decision. They don't recruit. It's not a political organization. Uh, but it is a discipleship ministry. Uh, they work with people who say they have unwanted same-sex attraction, and they work with him for a period of a year or two uh, through what the Scriptures have to say. It's a counseling and uh, program, and they do some significant work. I've uh, met with and known some of the people who've gone through that program. I'm very familiar with some of the teachers of the program, and um, they're doing some uh, tremendous work. So we'll bring you up to date on the challenges they face as the landscape has and continues to change. Not only in the Portland area, but all across the country. And then on Friday, assuming that uh, we're not all buried in feet of snow, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So I'm looking forward to that after a very long and serious week of um, of heavier news. So we'll uh, we'll get into that on Friday. If you didn't have the opportunity to listen the first hour of today's program, I interviewed Mike Barry. He's the author of Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. If you missed that interview, or for that matter, any interview that uh, we broadcast on this program, you can go to kpdq.com and download the podcast. You can listen to whole programs or single um, interviews uh, of your choosing, so you can check that out. Uh, to hear my conversation with Mike Berry, Winning the Heart of Your Child, Nine Keys to Building a Positive Lifelong Relationship with Your Kids. And once again, tomorrow we'll follow up and respond to the State of the Union address and others who responded to it as well and hopefully uh, have a better, clearer understanding of where we're moving on from here. And of course, one of the key issues is whether or not Congress can come to some sort of an agreement to prevent another government shutdown. The deadline is February 15th. Today being the fifth, that tells you just how how tight that timeline is. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show and like us on Facebook.